Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works by Philip K. Dick in roughly the order that they were published in, while giving my thoughts and my comments on each story or section of a novel. Now, currently, we're looking at the stories of 1955, and we're drawing to the end of this this sort of mini-series on the stories of 1955. Um... Dick published 12 stories that year, um, and so I, if you've been joining us, you've, you've seen those other stories, and if you heard me in my comments on those stories, and you know that I think this is really one of the great years for him. He certainly published less it's, you know, than he did in the previous two years, right? But he published closer to 30 stories in 53 and 54, but in 1955, um, many of his ideas start to come together. Um, and we start to get a clearer idea of Dick's progression as a writer. One of the problems we ran into a lot in the series on the stories from 1953 and 54 is that, you know, he was publishing things whenever he could. And often that meant that stories were being published pretty, sometimes three or four years from the time he wrote them down. Now we're getting to, to the stage where we can kind of get a little bit more of a clear progression, uh, progression, progression in his thoughts. Um, now, I think one common thing we see in a lot of the stories published in 1955, or a couple of the themes are really conformity. Um, another would be consumerism, and, and connected to that is automation. And these, story, these themes really do come together in the story, The Mold of Yancey, which is the story we're going to be looking at, looking at today. Um, I, th I believe we have some of Dick's own comments on the story, so let's take a quick look at them. Okay, so in, a, in an anthology published in 1978, Dick wrote the following few sentences about the mold of Yancey. Uh, quote, obviously Yancey is based on President Eisenhower. During his reign, we all were worrying about the man in the gray final suit problem. We feared that the entire country was turning into one person and a whole lot of clones. Although in those days the word clones was unknown to us. I like this story enough to use it as the basis of my novel, The Penultimate Truth. In particular, the part where everyone... Everything the government tells you is a lie. I still like that part. I mean, I still believe it's so. Watergate, of course, bore the basic idea of this story out. End quote. So there's some good uh, context and him looking back on it after almost 20 years. It's rather fun for him to, to kind of connect more current issues at the time to a story he wrote back in the 50s. But I, I, I guess at the time he's responding more to works like The One-Dimensional Man or The Organizational Man. And a few others. I talked in this, I think it was in, um, uh, I forget uh, the name of the story, actually. It's the one where you have all the crazy soldiers, the soldiers who have became paranoid and thought they were under attack from another force when actually there was no enemy to speak of. I talked about kind of the tra trajectory of mental illness at the time. And one, one of the books I mentioned, I believe in that episode, was... Um, a work that basically was suggesting that the American middle class had these authoritarian um, tendencies and would likely get 
become authoritarian um, if the chance came. And because of their conformity, that was really the criticism. And, and that was a book that was fairly well received at the time. In fact, it was a team of psychiatrists who, who wrote it. Um, but there were a lot of these works that were critiquing mass culture and conformity and all those things in the 1950s. And then you had, of course, the beat writers and, and people kind of, writers kind of attacking this from the outside as well. Um, just this idea of everyone kind of living in the same kind of houses, in the same suburbs, working in the same types of offices, wearing the same types of suits, uh, marrying the same types of people who all look the same. And, you know, that song Little Boxes kind of gives us a sense of that. So the mold, the mold of Yancey uh, kind of draws on all that, but it has this really nice political narrative as well. So uh, without more comment, let's just jump into this story. The Mold of Yancey was originally published in IF, I-F, IF, in August of 1955. And it's in the fourth volume, the fourth volume of the collected stories of Philip Dick, the one titled Minority Report, and other classic stories by Philip Dick. Um, so we're, we're, we're well into the fourth volume of Dick's cl uh, collected works. We'll, we'll go back. There's a few we're missing uh, from the earlier volumes, but we're kind of, you know, we're already over half done with Dick's stories already. Um, and we have only touched a handful of, of the novels, but that will shortly change. Okay, so If magazine in August 1955. So the plot of the story begins with a bunch of workers. So this is a really nice idea here. It's that the government is kind of the creation of bureaucrats. Um, and the president, the leader, I guess it's not really a president here, but the leader is not so much an important it's not that important as much as the people who kind of craft the message around him and so he's in his office trying to come up with a gestalt to be used by by yancey and what this gestalt is will will be revealed a little bit later on but essentially it's it's the image it's the projection of the leader that's supposed to be a reflection of society or the thing that's going to shape society um, then the direction it goes. It's, this story is actually very much like service call and this idea that there's a tech, in that story there was a technology that kind of pushed gradually people to have the same point of view on all issues. Here it's the political leader who, who does that. It's the indispensable leader. And obviously he's thinking about authoritarianisms, but as he says in his comments, you know, he throws in Eisenhower. Eisenhower was, was Yancey. So it's not strictly about the the authoritarianism is in the idea that you have an indispensable leader. He's seen this as even a problem in democracies, maybe even a worse problem in democratic societies. So he can't really come up with anything. So he watches the latest gestalt of, of Yancey. And, you know, these are kind of like speeches, but they're projections they're images of, of this ideal figure uh, given to the public. And so Yancey is, is telling the story about a squirrel collecting nuts, preparing for the winter. And it, you know, he, it's, that's, that's what we got. And he doesn't finish it. This guy, Leon Stippling, doesn't finish watching it. I, I think he's still, he goes to take a break or something. So he doesn't, um, yeah, I think it's still waiting for Stippling's contribution. I think that's why it had to, he couldn't quite finish it. So it's still like in process. They're still trying to, to fine tune the message and, Stippling is supposed to prepare part of this message. He doesn't really quite know what to say or to add to it. So now somewhere else we have this man named Peter Tavener, and he's working for an, an, an as an analyst in Nip Plan Police. So this is 
kind of another setting. So Stippling and Yancey, that's all on Calypso. That's kind of where the main setting of this world is. But here we have Peter Travener back, I think it's Earth, but he's preparing intelligence reports on what's going on in Calypso. So once again, something Dick's done again and again is presenting the frontiers fundamentally, culturally, politically, socially, you know, in in many ways different from Earth. So these colonies really do become new societies in Dick's mind almost always. There's, they're not just mere extensions of of Earth and Earth culture. Okay, so Taffiner is, is explaining to this other man, Kel Kellimer, and they're all like police, that Calypso has achieved a totalitarian society without a dictatorship. So this is the key point. How do you get to a totalitarian society without within a democracy, right? So he, he makes the point that even elected societies can be democratic. And of course, uh, Nazi Germany was was elected. It didn't have a majority, it had a plurality, but eventually it, it went through democratic means to, to seize power before moving to authoritarianism. So that might be on Dick's mind here. But just this idea that you, you could have any kind of form of, of society or government that could lead to dictatorship or, or totalitarianism, sorry. Even elected parliaments can be totalitarian if the laws they pass and the policies they have and the ideology they project can, can thrust into everyday people's lives. So Taverner agrees that he should go to Calypso once the police can make him kind of look like a Calypso tight or whatever they're called. Um, and the problem with the Calypso tights is that they, they, they're looking more and more alike. They don't have individual differentiations anymore. So I guess that makes it easier for him to put, you know, to fit in. But it also, there's more of a demand that you look like everyone else. You have to look exactly like everyone else because no one kind of fits outside the basic mold. Um, but, but here's what um, I think it's, yeah, it's Kellerman who says this. He says, don't confuse a totalitarian society with a dictatorship. A totalitarian society or state reaches into every sphere of its citizens' lives, forms their opinion on every subject. The government can be a dictatorship or a parliament or an elected president or a council of priests. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so basically he, he's going there to spy on them. So a little bit later, Taverner arrives at Calypso, which is the fastest growing human settlement in the system, one of the most successful, but is really verging off in politically odd ways in, in different ways. The guards at customs immediately realize that he works for the police, but they let him in anyways. So I guess their disguise didn't really work that well. And that evening, Taverner meets his colleagues, a man named Dorser and another one named Ekman. And they report to him that there's really not the normal things you'd expect in a dictatorship or an authoritarian society on, on Calypso. Debate is openly allowed. No opinions are suppressed. And I just want to jump out of here for a minute and you know, think how creative Dick is politically at this point in his career. He's created this, I, this open society in which everyone ends up the same, which of course is a model of the United States in the 1950s in Dick's mind. You have moral reclamation in The Man Who Japed. You have relativism, which is the complete opposite of moral reclamation in, in the story The World Jones Made. You have this kind of randomocracy in Solar Lottery. And these are all novels published around the same period of time. So he's being quite creative uh, about government. And I, I think that's an aspect of his career that really has to be respected and, and maybe talked more about is, yeah, he's dystopian, um, but he's, and he's a dystopian writer, but he's one of the most creative dystopian writers who, who's ever been there. It's not just the run of the mill 
you know, dictatorship that you find in, in so many novels today. I mean, I know dystopias are popular, but you get the same kind of states. In this. And there's not as much curiosity about how these states um, actually work. And Dick just has so many different models of, of how this can work. And this is a really interesting one um, because it has none of the apparatus of, of dictatorship. The borders are completely open, right? And as we see, Taverner was not arrested when he came in, even though he was identified as being odd. There's no political prisoners. There are criminals, as, as all societies have, but there's no political prisoners. Discussions actually encouraged. Ekman is baffled at how a totalitarian society like the one they have on Calypso can lack without any enforcement apparatus at all. Um, Taverner is introduced through the television to Yancey. So Yancey is this quasi-official figure, basically this leader, uh, but he's not even really so much a president. He doesn't seem to have any official power. He's just one who gives political commentary. He's doing kind of like these fireside chats almost. And we, we saw early in the story how these were being made basically by bureaucrats. Now this guy, Yancey, is loved by the masses. Um, he endorses products, and whenever he endorses a product, they're immediately accepted by the masses, by the people without question, and bought up and used. He made crochet popular. Yeah. But he's a very unimpressive man when these earthlings look at him. He just doesn't seem like the kind of person that should have this kind of political power and, and influence. So Travener is told that he will need to wait four months before he can see the very popular John Yancey for himself. So he's watching one of these gestalts in progress, which are basically these kind of speeches. He gives these political commentaries. And in his eyes, Yancey seems to have changed subtly. His more serious messages about vigilance against enemies began to be reflected in an older and more serious tone. So everything that Yancey says is, is very carefully crafted by the people in charge. Looking into Yancey, Travener learns that he has spoken on almost every imaginal, well, looking in, like researching, you know, what Yancey has done, looking at the old gestalts and, and kind of following his career. Travener learned that he has spoken on almost every imaginable subject. And he often has very definite opinions. Again, open opinions and discussion are encouraged in this society. But on one issue in particular, he's very vapid, and that's the issue of war. Right? He supports peace, but he talks about the need to protect Calypso. And a closer inspection of older tapes show that Yancey was willing to talk about controversial issues and give his opinions, but these opinions never amounted to a statement. There was always, it was always very wishy-washy in a way, especially on the most important political issues. He realized, so yeah, he realizes that this is how Calypso created a totalitarian state without any repression. Basically, it's, it's authoritarianism through total banality of political opinions. It has a little bit in common, I think, with relativism that you see in the world Jones made, but this is even more creative because it's it's not so much that every opinion, no, no one's allowed to express an opinion. Here, everyone's allowed to express an opinion, but out of the process of this, no opinion really matters. It's just, and then we got the central voice who doesn't really take firm sides on things. Or if he does, it's always on very banal topics or vapid topics. Now, this banality is enforced as everyone follows the advice of Yancey. Travener decides that he needs to get out of, you know, 
go out, but he's interested, you know, he's, and he's, he's, he's kind of in those like general archives or something, but he's has to go out and he's intercepted by Leon Sipling, who he met before. And he says, we need to speak with you. So Sipling gives Travener this history of Yancey, who isn't synthetic. He's an android. He's based on a collection of normal people. So he's not special. So he himself is a gestalt, right? He's, he's a mixture. So this term gestalt has several layers of meaning here because Yancey himself is a gestalt, as his whole society is. He started as a means to get the population of Calypso in line and unified in preparation for a war with Ganymede, another, you know, a trading competitor in another colony in the system. And this massive bureaucracy was created, you know, creates the material shared to the world by Yancey. So this bureaucracy is the one really presenting this message. And because it's a big bureaucracy, you're going to get this kind of fuzziness and, 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 and banality that, that's so important to Yancey's power. Now, to make his point, Sipling has Travener interview a boy about his opinions. And he reveals that this boy, this young boy, can recite Yancey's claims. But when asked, why do you think that, those views, why do you believe this? He really can't say anything. He can't give any explanations. So Tav, Trav, Tavener agrees to help Sipling um, with his, which is goal, which is a little unclear at this point in the story, but it'll become clear um, soon enough. So the idea that they come up with is to keep the Yancey infrastructure in, intact. Travener and Sipling work together to change the format of, of the Yancey program, essentially. The backgrounds change to be more intellectual. So we have like, new books in the back, like the Journal of Psychological Review, right? The Yancey Gestalt is more subtly ambiguous instead of absolute. Includes a story about his preference for breakfast for breakfast versus his wife's preference. So it's a very folksy story, which is what people would expect from Yancey. But instead of just saying, we like, I don't know, whatever kind of breakfast, she says, my wife likes this and I like this. So this is the foundation. This is the foundation of more substantial and dramatic changes, which are going to be worked into the Gestalt. That's going to give a little, instead of just this fuzzy, murky banality, to give actual clear distinctions in policy and real debate, to make give debate meaning again. And they talk about how they're going to talk about the injustice of war, perhaps, and then more radically even perhaps how he prefers Bosch's paintings to pastoral calendars, which I think are kind of what are popular. They sound like the kind of thing that'd be popular on Calypso, uh, the way this world is described. So, and that's how the story ends. So we we have these two people, one from Earth and one of these bureaucrats from within um, the system, Leo, Leon Sipling, kind of working together to, to tweak Yancey and the Gestalts in new ways that are going to change fundamentally the nature of this society from a totalitarian society to one in which debate is actually going to be significant. But here's the key idea in the world of Yancey, is that it, you can have a democracy that's totalitarian, where everyone thinks the same, if the debates that are encouraged and allowed to happen don't really matter. And then, of course, we have this important theme that we must think about in our own world, which is how people so often parrot and just copy the messages, the political lines, the statements they hear, on the news or on the media they consume, especially in this world where people consume their media really in very fragmented ways. You know, they consume only the media that kind of fits their worldview and their point of view. 
Okay, so what to say about this story? What more to say? Um, well, like I said before, it should be, it's very much like Service Call in its, its themes. It's basically two different ways to get to ideological conformity. One through media, I guess, and the other through a cons- consumerism. I think the mold of Yancey is more convincing. I don't quite see how like your toaster could convince you ideologically. You need media. Media makes a lot more sense uh, as a way to push people's opinions into one direction or another. Now, of course, we have this world of the 1950s, the world of Walter Cronkite. Oh, I don't know if he was around in the 50s, but it's the same idea, right? Where everyone got their news from their newspapers from the you know the AP or maybe if they subscribe to a national newspaper but more likely even if they didn't read it more likely they got it in the weekly world or the nightly world news All right they, of course they still have these but very f- fewer people get their news from that so when Cronkite I think it was you know gave his speech about the failure in Vietnam that affected millions of people millions of people were shaped by that and they trusted that voice and that led them to start to turn their back on US policy in in Vietnam it's, it's because everyone got their media from there. This was the day of three, four channels, right? And everyone was, was getting a similar message, in, you know, in the same kind of stories. And that created kind of a, a nice foundation for conversation, for politics, for, for solidarity. But in Dick's mind, it's also going to create this conformity of thinking. Now, yeah, so in a way, I'm a bit skeptical that skeptical of this idea that you know we have these authentic thoughts that somehow exist outside of our influence we're all influenced uh, yeah and of course we don't want a society where everyone thinks the same I guess but you know to this idea that there's an authentic self underneath all our masks or something is something I don't really buy I don't really agree um, we're all products of our conditioning and our habits uh, and mostly who we are is, is not from ourselves so this there's this problem i have with i guess radical individualism as as a philosophy i think we are more products of our of our training and that means it's always going to be in dialogue with the societies we're a part of the general will if you will if you want to take the rousseauian concept um but it it does mold of yancey does seem more plausible than service call as a way of getting at this idea so Dick said he got the idea for Yancey from watching the folksy and vapid musings of Eisenhower, who was president when this story came out. The point he wanted to make this was obvious, and that is while the Soviets presented this image of unity and conformity, it was the United States that was achieving it by creating a homogenous and banal middle-class culture. And if we want to push this even farther, this is already, well, I guess 55 is right at the point where Khrushchev's rising in power, right? But Stalin is dead a few years, and his successor, Khrushchev, did not embrace the cult of personality in this in the same way. In fact, no later Soviet leaders really did. Brezhnev was an old fogey in, in a lot of ways, and he was surrounded himself by those old Stalinists and moved back on some of Khrushchev's reforms in the economy and other places. But Khrushchev one thing he didn't really embrace was the cult of personality that, that Stalin had. Certainly Gorbachev and, and Brezhnev didn't quite have it either. So they were moving away from this. Um, I don't know how much Dick would have been conscious of that, but certainly this idea that totalitarianism could be rooted in the American middle class was something that people were thinking about and talking about. 
Now, while today we don't have a Yancey directing our thinking, we do have popular culture that does move the population towards a certain set of values, right? How, how much, you know, is our thinking shaped by who we watch on YouTube, you know, and the, the media we consume? Dick is certainly correct to see an entry point of totalitarian conformity in consumerism as he does in service call, but here it's a very particular type of consumerism, and that is the consumerism of the media. While people may disagree on politics, they tend to find common ground in consumerism and popular culture. For instance, we, you know, we could pick a show, right? Pick a show, Game of Thrones, right? Most people can talk about Game of Thrones, right? Even if they don't watch it, they can probably say a few things about it. They probably have an opinion about it. And those opinions probably aren't going to be very diverse. I, you know, this is early in 2018 when I'm recording this. And, you know, if I think about there's kind of like two opinions about The the Last Jedi, the last related Star Wars movie. And they're pretty diametrically opposed, but there's kind of these cultures around each opinion about that movie. And there's a lot of homogenization in that. I watched a few reviews of that movie on YouTube, and I was just the same ideas kept coming up. Now, did all those people come to the same conclusion, you know, just by watching it? Or did they reinforce each other and kind of create this gestalt opinion? Okay, so once we agree on something, then we can go a bit farther into it. And, th and then what we see with Yancey is there can be an opinion, but behind that is kind of this muddled banality, right? We don't want war, but we must protect ourselves. We must fight it. Slowly and gradually, the conformity of everyday life becomes the conformity of political opinions. That, that's, what we're, that's what we get from this story, I guess. Yancey says at one point, I feel a planet must be strong. We must not surrender ourselves meekly. Weakness invites attack and fosters aggression. By being weak, we promote war. We must gird ourselves and protect those we love. With all my heart and soul, I'm against useless wars. But I say again, and I've said many times before, a man must come forward and fight. End quote. This is a really great example of, of how someone can say something that sounds profound, but on deeper investigation, it doesn't say anything at all. I'm, I'm reminded of, I think it's in season three of The Wire, there's this speech by the guy who wants to be mayor, Tommy Carcetti, right? I, I think he's like the proto, he's like the fictional version of, 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 of Martin O'Malley, right? The mayor of, of Baltimore and later became governor of Maryland. But he gives a speech about the importance of fighting the drug war and all this. And it's a very good political speech. And everyone claps at the end. But when you go back and watch it, he says nothing. It is completely banal. And then, but this is a, this this quote from Yance shows this. Um, so on the really important issues, it gets murked up. These opinions get murky. And now Dick really is stressing here that it's the folksy character of Yancey that's the heart of the danger, right? And that's what makes him such a, a potentially powerful totalitarian figure compared to maybe the true autocrat. You have family, home, pastoral calendars dime novel westerns, hardworking squirrels. This is all, of, this is Yancey's lexicon. Now, none of them inspire real divisions of emotion. Right? If he delivered opinions on art, and that's what is brought up at the end of the story. If he had delivered opinions on art or culture, philosophy, or said Schubert, not 
Spock or something like that. This plan couldn't work because those are where they're going to have divisions. You can't be quite so folksy about that and neutral and wishy-washy about those things. One can be neutral about a pastoral calendar, but not Bosch or the art of the fugue. And that's what's brought up at the end of, of the story here. So this is almost a nice argument about anti-intellectualism or against anti-intellectualism. And I think that may have been something else Dick was fearing in the 1950s. Anti-intellectualism, in short, makes totalitarianism easier to creep in. Not because people lack opinions or silence, but because most of us that will have opinions have them on things that simply don't matter that much. Now, what about Trump then? We, we should maybe say a few words about um, President Trump. Now, certainly he's not folksy, although there is a subsection of the American population that seems to care for and like his ramblings on Twitter and his uh, weird public proclamations that he makes. It's not a majority of people that like it, so he's not achieving this gestalt of, of, of Yancey. I do think the folksy route is would be better. And in a, in a way, Obama actually did the folksy better because he could talk about American traditions and in a way that, that Trump can't. I remember some of Obama's speeches where he would talk about this great sweep of American history and this, this very Whiggish view of American history, this kind of unfolding of liberty. You know, Trump couldn't do that even if he wanted to. He simply doesn't have the intellectual background to even make such a case. But some people seem to like the way he talks and the way he presents himself and are, are enamored by that. But I don't think it's, it's it doesn't have this folksiness. But he does have this ability to talk about nothing. And, you know, I'm still kind of confused. I don't know if this is him, try, you know, being consciously crafting a message I, I hope not, actually. But or is it just he's he, he's very good at dodging and, and, and walk, talk, talking around his own ignorance? But the end result is the same as if you listen to some of his speeches and some of his interviews, he's capable of talking about nothing at all in any meaningful way. And in that sense, he has something in common with with Yancey. Um, but fortunately, he's not getting anywhere near a gestalt in the sense of really conforming and shaping public opinion, at least outside, not outside of his 32% uh, of supporters. So I guess that's all I'll say about uh, Trump for now. I don't really think he's a Yancey. He just doesn't have the folksiness of it. Um, but he does have the anti-intellectualism. And I think that's a very dangerous thing because you know, I come from an academic background myself. And, you know, it just lends itself. Now, there's a lot of, I guess, scholarship that I think can be dodgy and cagey and use weasel words and things like that. But at, at the end of the day, you're making arguments and that's, that's what you're paid to do. And that's what your research is supposed to do. And that's what you're trained to do. You're, you're even, you know, sometimes you're contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian, of course. And that, that sometimes is a, is a problem or being original just to be original, but it, you know, you're, you're, you're trained to make arguments and often you make, you're trained to make arguments about relevant things, right? Not, not banal things, right? It's it's not like what flower smells nicest that that matters, right? It's you know the why did Napoleon fail or something like those are those are important issues and they're they're going to lead to dis divisions and and value judgments and, and different values, right? I think one of my favorite historical debates is, is is the kind of the who freed the slaves debate, right? Was it Lincoln, the great emancipator, 
or was it the slaves themselves through their actions, you know, during the war, running away, fighting in the Union Army and all that stuff, right? And these are two opinions. And yeah, there's common ground that could be found between them, but they do seem to present two very different views of, of history. Um, and they, they come from different moral codes. Do you believe in history from below? Do you believe in kind of the, how the mass of people can shape history? Or do you still believe in the great man model of history? And so Yancey's power was to avoid the serious issues and to, and to stick with banalities. And media is a good place to do that because what media is trying to get at is the biggest consumer base, right? The most audience, the, the, the most listeners or the most readers or the most people watching. And uh, that's kind of where Trump dwells and that's where his expertise, such as it is, lies. So maybe there is a bit of a danger there, but you know, it's, I, I tend to think it would be more powerful if, if he could be a little more folksy and Americanish and, you know, aw shucks kind of um, way of talking about things. And that's one thing I really like about this story is that Philip Dick was able to use this aspect of kind of American populism um, in this story about totalitarianism, right? There, you can see it on YouTube. It's, I think it's Huey Long's speech about his share of the wealth program. If you don't know about that, that was a plan in the 30s that the governor, then governor, later on senator from Louisiana had, which was basically to tax the rich and, and kind of give everyone a f land and a farm and education and things like that. Basically a, a, a type of socialist security safety net um, system, kind of like a basic income almost, I think he was proposing. Anyways, that was his idea. And he, he, there's a speech, you can see it on YouTube where he talks about it. And, and his whole image is like, a barbecue where you're with your friends and one guy takes all the food and then the others say, no, no, you can't have that grub. It, it's really folksy and nice and it, it's very quaint, the story that he tells, even if it's behind it is this political um, argument. So some some politicians can do this better than, than others. And I don't think Trump is, is quite there, but he does have an appeal among some people. That's all I'm saying. So um, that does it for the mold of Yancey, a really wonderful story. Certainly one you have to read if you're a Philip Dick fan and you probably have. Uh, we'll revisit some of these themes and stories like the simulacrum, certainly the penultimate truth, something like the Yancemen show up again. I think Yancey's in there, although it's kind of used differently in the penultimate truth, but um, and a few other stories, this, this idea is going to come up again. So that will do it for the mold of Yancey. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please leave your comments behind it. If you have opinions about anything I said, is there any relevance to the mold of Yancey, to our current political climate and our current president, at least if you're an American or our current president um, or the current president of the United States, I should say? You know, please leave them down below. I'd love to hear your opinions about that. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And if you do that, I'll, I'll respond to you on the air in an upcoming episode. Uh, so with that, I'm going to go. I'll be back shortly with yet another story by Philip K. Dick as we wind down this long train of stories we've been um, looking at with and, and get to the end of 1955. So thank you again for listening. See you next time. My tired thoughts that leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving